0: and and then you can graduate up to perhaps a a boutique agency small firm one or two-man band you know right now a lot of obviously because of covid people are working virtually but there are a lot of agencies with say perhaps five or six people who don't have as much overhead who focus on a specific niche in an industry have targeted relationships there and can give you a really focused like high price performance type of of program that can just get you out there and put
1: you on the map. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Sabrina Horn. Sabrina, thanks for doing this.
0: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
1: So, tell everybody about your new book.
0: Um, right. So, so the book is called "Make It, Don't Fake It," and it's kind of an attempt to help entrepreneurs and executives run their businesses with a renewed focus on integrity and resist the temptation to fake it till you make it, which I I think is just a horrible meme, and just the worst business advice ever. And so I really draw upon kind of two lenses in my career. One is as a public relations professional, right? And you, you might think, wow, I'm talking to a PR person about authenticity and integrity. That's interesting. <laughs> but actually, PR is the best PR is all about getting to the truth and dealing with the truth and finding a path forward. And then the, the other lens is, of course, that I was a CEO Of that company, of that practice for 25 years in Silicon Valley and made a lot of mistakes along the way because I I didn't have any leadership training. And so I bring those two perspectives kind of to this book to share lessons learned and tips and so forth.
1: So I understand you've you've helped firms of all different sizes over the years. Are there some of the are there some clients of yours that we would recognize the brand names of?
0: <laughs> yes, I mean mostly my practice in Silicon Valley, right, which is the world of startups and emerging growth companies, where where young companies that came to us to try and create a new brand and essentially build an image from nothing, right? And some of those became more successful than others. Many of them were acquired, but starting in the 1990s, you know, it was all about enterprise software back then. So PeopleSoft is a company that many may recognize. They were one of sort of a groundbreaking HR software company that was acquired by Oracle much later. And then companies like Vantiv and Commerce One, the first e-commerce uh, players, companies and business decisions and object management. You know, we got pretty geeky back then. But then sort of moving more into like 2000 and 2010, we, we worked with companies like Forbes, Forbes Media, which needed to kind of rebrand itself and transform its company with a digital publishing model. And lots of companies in the ad tech space like Right. Right Media, Adify. I mean, there, there were thousands of companies we we worked with.
1: Yeah. When you think about a company like Forbes, I think there's a lot of folks that would like to think, oh no, they've been publishers for a hundred years. They must know everybody. You know, why do they need outside help? And I can tell you, because I co-hosted a, I'll leave that alone. I did some work with some folks at Forbes and I have I, I've seen that, you know, it's a business and things change and there's always personalities and stuff. But but in your perspective what, on that project, say for Forbes, Can you help people understand the kind of questions you ask? You you know, they come to you. What do they say to begin with? What questions do you ask? What's that exchange like?
0: Right. Okay. So as with any engagement in public relations, working with a, a new client, you start off by peeling back the onion. Like what's your, what's your challenge? What do you want to accomplish with public relations? And interestingly enough, like sometimes that's the, they just think, oh, we need some PR, you know, get some publicity. But but they haven't really thought about why. And the question comes down to what does success look like? Like a year from now, what do you want to have accomplished with this effort? And then you can start to work your way back to, okay, so how? what are your assets? What are the challenges we have to deal with? How much market education perhaps do we have to do or changing of perceptions, Right. And then build a plan and start to execute it properly. So there's a lot that happens right up front. With Forbes specifically, right, Forbes was a family run business forever, you know, mahogany walls and just to have this sort of particular image and and reputation, which wasn't stodgy, but it needed to be reinvigorated and it needed um, a bit of excitement infused into it. And then, of course, along came this the whole transformation of the publishing industry, which was a forcing function to get them to rethink their business model and become more of a digital publisher of information. So there was a whole kind of transformation of both, right, the original brand, but then a, a new business model. And those things together made made for a very challenging period of time. And to add to that, the Forbes family brought on board the first non-family member chief executive, Mike Perlis. And so we, we worked very closely with him. He's a terrific guy who was you know, very humble, actually, in his approach about being open-minded and to, to learning about what strategies would resonate in the market. Now, mind you, the other challenge we had is that we're trying to, in essence, pitch a story about a company and how it's transforming itself to reporters who are seeing their colleagues being laid off in the industry, <laughs> and so you know it was it was challenging to find neutral ground, right? You know that actually you know here's a company that is actually doing something different and and means well, and it, it took I would say from start to finish about 12 to 18 months to kind of write that ship and to, to play that story and to seed it and to get the reaction and to invite people into Forbes and have them come to one of Mike's town halls. Ultimately, it was a success. The company achieved its goal of, of transforming its brand, switching to a different business model and making that work. Forbes.com is very successful, you know, as you know, today. And ultimately, the company was purchased um, by a Chinese holding company which was the end goal from a, from a financial business standpoint for them.
1: That's great. Well, you know, I, I have a number of friends that have become Forbes contributors since that time, and some that are no longer contributors there. Staying on this theme for a minute, when you think about this idea of the evolution of journalism, the evolution of how and where we get our media these days, and, and you look at maybe the next five years or 10 years, What do you see coming down the pipe that maybe not everybody recognizes? You know, not, not everybody gets to be in it all day, every day.
0: Yeah. So I I think a couple things, right. All this business about fake news needs to be, needs to be fixed, right. We need to trust the sources of information that we listen to and read and hear. And I think right now, unfortunately, like, this The concept of being honest and authenticity is is so refreshing <laughs> that it cuts through the noise. And I don't want to say that that should be like you know, your marketing strategy because then then it gets tainted. You know, you you should always lead with honesty and integrity. But I think in in that vein, we've heard a lot recently about communicating with empathy. and i I talk a little bit about love based marketing. Right. So as opposed to fear based marketing where you're putting out messages like if you don't use this product, you'll get sick or if you don't buy this insurance program, you won't be covered and your family will be at risk. Love-based marketing is the opposite, which is all about creating a sense of belonging and feeling better and inclusion, right? And the language that you use and the images that you use all make you feel better if if you were to use this product or this insurance service. The underpinnings of all that is is empathy and empathetic marketing. And, And to do that properly, like you have to It's less about being aggressive and guerrilla marketing. It's more about listening and about understanding and reflecting how other people feel.
1: Yeah. When you think about PR, I think for me, a lot of times the the thing that comes to mind is telling my story right? Telling our company story, having, a you know, advising a friend on how to get their story out there. And I'm not sure that in in general, listening is like the first step that people think of. And yet, as soon as you say it, I can see the advantage in it. What's an example of the kind of listening, you know, an entrepreneur or somebody listening today should do before crafting PR messages with, with whoever they're working with?
0: Yeah. You know, so It is. It's absolutely like it makes sense, but most people don't think about it. They entrepreneurs usually lead with here's what we do and here's why we're great. (laughs) And actually, what you should be doing is saying, here's this problem out there. Right. And and there's different ways of solving this problem, but it doesn't get to this one specific issue or it doesn't cover this whole spectrum of things. Here's how we solve this problem differently and talking more about solving problems and value proposition, then here's what we do and here's why we're great. And that really is is a shift that is very important and has to take place first. The other thing is, is just the simple notion of asking questions. Like when these sort of circumstances occur, what happens to you? How do you deal with this problem? How do you feel about it, right? And in technology in particular, we can be so sterile in how we talk about things. And what do we know about brands, right? Brands are, is the, branding is the the connection, the emotional relationship a person has with a product or a company, the emotional connection, right? Because it's based on trust. And if we could just do a little bit more in the tech industry to create that emotional connection, which is based on feeling, I think that the marketing would be a lot more successful. So how do you get there? I mean, that's a function of listening, of asking questions, and then and then playing that back.
1: You know, I I was just this morning, I was just watching some highlights from the the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talking about their business, right? And they were talking about what advantages tech businesses have, even though historically they're not big tech investors. And this idea of of what a superior model it is where it doesn't eat up so much cash to make cash, right? Mm -hmm. And there's so many advantages in tech. And yet you look, there are obviously such clear winners. And I mean, I look at some CEOs that I I think have really done something interesting, rather than only having great product. They're also like, I call them like marketing first CEOs, okay, like Mm -hmm. a Mark Benioff, a Steve Jobs, right? Like, Great stuff that was actually differentiated, like it wasn't just lipstick on a pig, like it was actually different, right, mm-hmm. in in a way that was valuable. But they were consistently talking about the kinds of things that would evoke emotion. I mean, the way Mark Benioff went after software and how cumbersome and hard it was to have these huge implementations that take forever, right? Like that, if you've been through that, that elicits an emotional response, you know? Right, right. Steve Jobs' product might've been better, but like his commercials and his stuff were not full of this one, 60 gigahertz, (laughs) right? It's like what, I mean, look at at least the last decade of Apple ads, they're highly emotional. And both of them really were able to understand what makes a journalist's life easier and give them a story worth writing about. This is my observation. I'm interested in both if you see it differently and any any other principles you'd add there.
0: Yeah. I mean, no, I I don't see it differently. I, I think you're spot on. The reason why those companies have such strong brands is because they created such an incredible emotional connection with their audiences, right? Whether that's you know business people or or everyday consumers who, who buy Apple products, and that's their secret sauce. Now, you know it's not something you can just like create out of thin air, right? Like, it, there has to be a connection between that story that you're telling and that connection that you're building with your values, right, and what you stand for, and connecting to the problem that you that you ultimately are solving for people and you know i'm sure that apple and salesforce had incredible you know budgets w- with which to do the right research and come up with the right campaign and you know people say oh it's not rocket science well you know it, it there's there's some magic in that and those people were very clever who who helped with that but it it is similar to a concept called thought leadership. And thought leadership is, it's this notion of creating like a bigger message or like a story arc, right? With a point of view that is different and that cuts through the noise and is compelling, but it's still authentic to what the the problem is that the, the company is ultimately solving, right? And at the end of the day, Salesforce and Apple, they're technology companies. They make technology. So, that it's absolutely the right way to do it. And startups are moving so fast, these entrepreneurs they don't have time to to really think about that. And sometimes categories get very crowded and you you're just, you know, you think you're just one of many. And so that's that's where the challenge, you know, really becomes difficult and of course when you're a startup you don't have millions of dollars of budget to do that. So there's then then comes the artistry.
1: Yeah, I I think about it like I don't know. As a kid in the '80s or '90s, you know, I wasn't too into car racing, but I had posters on the wall, right? And maybe the one name I could have named was Mario Andretti. And it's like, you know, he's not like you have to have a Ferrari, right? Like your tech actually works. Your your product has to genuinely have something else to offer that that is not just a me too, right? But like the Ferrari also needs a driver like people there. The story needs to be told, like it's hard for people to buy your stuff if they've never heard of it, you right. know, if, and, and if they have heard of it, if it's only appealed to the logic. I mean, modern science shows that like we are not as rational as the Harvard professors like to tell us back in the 1950s that. The limbic system in our brain, the emotional part of our brain, is the last part to light up before a decision gets made. It's like it's our emotions about logic, and and you know we've been hardwired for how many centuries, uh, millennia to to adapt to stories, to learn through stories, to be motivated by stories. I mean, there's the the market. I'm I'm a real audiobook nerd. I mean, the market is full of books about storytelling, and you know it's it's such a buzzword. It's it's a, almost uh, gets tuned out. And yet, mm-hmm. what percentage of people really are, what percentage of CEOs really are master storytellers? And I, I don't I don't see it as a huge percentage.
0: Very small. Yeah. <laughs> Very small. And not all CEOs are good communicators, right? And so that's why you have spokespeople. That's why celebrities are paid lots of money to speak for you. You know, that, that those are all options that can work, right? Sometimes you have your chief technology officer or the actual creator of the technology speaking about it rather than the chief executive officer. And and that's fine. But in the practice of public relations, we we do work to identify who is the best person to tell the story. And and if it's not the founder and or the CEO, then it has to be someone else. That being said, you know, it, it is absolutely, you know, it's a skill and a craft to be a good communicator, whether that's Whether you're just talking about the goodness of your brand and your story and why it matters and you have this cachet and you're just, you know, people are just in awe of this person, right, as they're walking across the stage. But you also have to be a good communicator during times of crisis, like the last year, and being to the point and providing a path forward and showing hope and a future. So it, it it is something you learn over time it's a skill you develop, but not every CEO has to be that person. It just is that someone has to be. That's a great point. Well,
1: let's say uh, people are going to sabrinahorn.com. They pre-order their copy of uh, Make It, Don't Fake It. What What's a story they can expect? Can you tell us one of your favorite stories from the book?
0: Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, there's a few, but uh, you know, the premise is to run your business or your life really with integrity, right? And resist the temptation to Fake it to exaggerate the truth or overpromise or omit certain facts or stick your head in the sand. So, you know, here's a common example. And it's a funny story now, but it wasn't then. This was coming off of the recession in 2008 and 2009. And, you know, we really needed to bring home some bacon and we needed to generate revenue. And uh, so we went out and I led this pitch. It was a half a million dollar deal, which was big deal, integrated marketing campaign with all kinds of bells and whistles and website and digital and social and marketing campaigns. And, you know, we totally oversold ourselves to get the deal because we needed the revenue. And, you know, do you have the people to do it? Yeah, sure. Can you get us in the Wall Street Journal? Whatever. like <laughs> No problem. And You know, I mean, ultimately, like we were behind the eight ball before we even started and we didn't have the resources. I couldn't find them. I couldn't pull them together. And we lost pieces of that account bit by bit. We made the VP of marketing who hired us look bad. And, and then ultimately we lost, we lost it all and we damaged our reputation. So, you know, that that's like a huge lesson in like, don't, don't overpromise what you can't deliver by orders of magnitude more than what you can actually do you know and that that was a painful a, a, a painful story and a second one might be another kind of type of of example of faking it when i sold my company after 24 years i was ceo of horn group on a friday and i was the managing partner of a technology practice with 100 people in it for another company called Finn partners on monday and after being an entrepreneur for so many years, like over two decades, I found my, I found myself experiencing what is known as imposter syndrome, where you don't believe you're deserving of the success you've achieved and you feel like you're a fraud. And so it got to the point where, you know, all these people are putting me on a pedestal and they think I'm going to bring home all this business and I'm going to, you know, create magic dust. And I I couldn't even introduce myself in a a meeting because I felt like this is just so not me. So that's like fake kind of fakery on a a whole other level that, you know, both men and women experience from time to time. It it affects a lot of type A people who are high achievers, especially women, actually in minorities. And so, you know, I wrote about that in the book as well.
1: No, I, I think about that. You know, I remember, you know, being a 28 year old CEO of my first fund. And like going to a meeting, somebody asked if my dad was coming, you know, (laughs) that it was like, the worst part was they weren't trying to be insulting. They actually meant it like they, yeah. And it just, you know, it like this, like cardboard cutout version of myself, I wanted everybody to believe is like taking a cheese grater to the side of it, you know, (laughs) or like, you know, I'm like 30, I'm speaking at a big energy conference in New York and there's like you know, JP Morgan, natural gas partners, you know, it's like $13 billion fund $10 billion fund $13 billion fund, Jess's $25 million fund, like missing three zeros. And I'm on stage (laughs) with these guys, right. And, and it's like, you know, had anybody brought that up, I would have been like, well, you know, of course, the girls like you, you were born with muscles on top of your shoulders. And And, you know, my dad, you know, I'm an art school dropout. My, my dad didn't get me a job at Goldman Sachs after I graduated Harvard, (laughs) you know, like, how can you expect that from, right? And yet how much of that is all self-focus and not, not being focused on service, not being focused on helping my team, my customers and like all about me and ultimately not that helpful, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, I think as a young executive, I did not have any leadership training. I had no management training. I had four years of job experience. And my father was an entrepreneur and an executive. And the people that I had worked for prior were certainly great role models. But a lot of it you sort of make up as you go along. And sometimes you can be utterly overwhelmed by the enormity of the decisions you have to make and the speed at which you have to make them. So things like procrastinating and like you know, will only delay making certain decisions that can set you back even further and or pretending, wishing that it'll all just go away and hoping that it'll get better. Like when the the internet bubble burst in 2000 and 2001, I was what, 39 years old and I was eight months pregnant with my second daughter. I just wanted the whole thing to go away. And I delayed having to make a very difficult decision to lay off some of our staff because business was just you know, vaporizing in, in, in front of me. And the longer I waited, the worse the situation I created for myself. And, you know, so, so that's a departure from imposter syndrome, but it comes back to this notion of not being able to deal with reality in the moment and having to step it up and rise to the occasion um, in the middle of a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt. And so, you know, I talk about some examples of that in, in, in my book and provide advice on how to deal with it. But, you know, if I, if I could just suggest a, f- a few things, right, to, to help, I think mentors and champions who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, are absolutely critical to keeping you on track And people you can talk to when, you know, there's nobody else with your title down the hall that you can go ask a question. Like you got to show up and you, you may go home at night feeling like a loser, but the next morning you've got to come in and act like a leader. And so you've got to have a support network of people you can talk to that, that you trust. The second thing is what I call the three V's, which are your value proposition, your vision for your business and your core values. And those three V's always have to be in alignment. Like this is this is what we want to accomplish. This is our aspirational vision for how we want to change an industry. And these are our core values that keep us grounded. And then here's our value proposition of how we deliver, you know, what we're delivering to, uh, to the customers and while, why they'll buy it. And those three things always have to be in alignment and they can ground you when everything is swirling around you like like crazy. And then a third practice that I that I try that has been helpful to other entrepreneurs that I've coached is this notion of what I call watching yourself in your own movie. So if you're about to deal with a really complicated situation or deliver a difficult message, Imagine that you're the director behind your own camera and you're, you're watching yourself in your movie. How do you want to see yourself play out? What do you want to see yourself saying? How do you want to sort of enact that? And you pre-visit the situation, the scenario in your head. And then it gives you greater confidence and sort of this calm to then actually perform that way when you're in the situation. There's more, but those would be three recommendations I, I would offer.
1: Oh, those are great. You know, a couple of other recommendations I'd love from you. When somebody is selecting a PR agency, yep. you know, there's there's some terrible ones, there's a lot of good ones, and then there's a few great ones. Yes. Uh, what kind of questions would you ask for somebody to figure out the difference between the good ones and the great ones?
0: Yes. Um, they're gonna hire? Excellent question. The questions you want to ask <laughs> are, who's going to be on my team? Because it's all about the people. And you want to know what their... Expertise is in your particular market. They have to know the nuances of the story that they're pitching, and they don't have to be engineers, but they have to understand in principle how the technology works and they have to be passionate. So, you really want to know who's going to be on the team and you want to meet them. Next, you want to know what they're going to do for you in terms of results. And this is a question that is very difficult for PR people to answer, right? Because you can't control what coverage is going to appear and what reporters will actually write a story and there are a lot of factors that go into that but you do want to get a ballpark a range of what youth what the agency thinks it can deliver given the material that you're giving them to work with and and then thirdly you want to know what their relationships are you know what reporters do they know who are the ones that they have built trust with and you know that's really what you are investing in is the connections they will bring to you.
1: Yeah, that's great. I feel like I'm going to have to re-listen to this and write those down. Okay, my <laughs> next one is: What about folks who just aren't in a financial position to take on a PR firm yet, and they're they're trying to do what they can themselves for for CEOs at, at the brand new start of the venture, and they're they're in that position? What's a what's a piece of advice you'd give there? Yeah,
0: so that of course every every CEO entrepreneur faces that. And there are a range of solutions. If you're just starting out and you you want some air cover and, you know, you want to start to build a little bit of buzz, it's perfectly acceptable to work with a, a freelancer, a contractor. These are experienced PR professionals who have hung out their own shingle and they can create content for you. They may help you do a soft launch of your business, make a few introductions and help you build sort of a roadmap for PR. And, and then you can graduate up to perhaps a, a boutique agency, small firm, one a two-man band. You know, right now, a lot of, obviously, because of COVID, people are working virtually. But there are a lot of agencies with, say, perhaps five or six people who don't have as much overhead, who focus on a specific niche in an industry, have targeted relationships there, and can give you a really focused, like high price performance type of of program that can just get you out there and put you on the map. And then as you get bigger, say your C round B or C round company, yeah, you know, you've got customers in in your back pocket that are using the product and it works. <laughs> and you have funding and you have an executive team. You've got some forward momentum. You might want to think about stepping it up to, you know, more of a, a small to mid-size agency. And the price tag for that varies obviously based on what you want to do with that program and you know obviously budget but you know then from there if you become a, a global company and you want to start to market overseas you know then you want to go to an agency that brings those capabilities to the table and you know from there you can go on up to you know the the huge intergalactic agencies that that are out there.
1: Yeah. You know, I I keep thinking about your Forbes story. What do you think you you brought to the table there? What do you think that you brought to the table that really helped?
0: Hmm. Well, I didn't because it was my team of people who did that. But what we brought to the table was coming up with the right sequence of the right messages to start to shift the perception about the brand while bringing them up to speed about what Forbes was doing that was innovative. And crafting those messages and knowing which ones to lead with first, second, and third, and then putting the whole story together and finding the right reporter, really, who was neutral enough to give us a chance to just tell the story. There was some art, some artistry in, in that. But it really, it all comes down to what it is you're saying and your messages, because it doesn't matter if your execution is awesome. It's if the message isn't right Or if it isn't delivered in the right manner, it won't be received.
1: You know, in case there's any PR professionals listening today, I'm interested in your advice for, you know, they all have connections to reporters, but then some PR professionals are incredible in that relationship building. You know, maybe somebody newer in their career, they want to follow the the greats, not just the goods, right? Right. What advice do you have for just any steps on on recommendations you have for them building relationships with reporters for PR professionals? Yeah, yeah, new, yeah, you know, newer, newer PR professional. They're trying to figure out what really is the best way. What is what's what's a really great principle for how I'm going to go about building my relationships?
0: Yeah. Well, first, start off by like reading about what they write, <laughs> like you know. Like it's, it's so so obvious, but like a lot of people don't do that, you know, just like read what they've written, look at their blog posts, understand what their point of view was, or, or, you know, who they interviewed their writing style, right? Look at their experience, go on their LinkedIn page and see where else they worked and follow their career. And, you know, so often I find that we do ourselves a disservice on the PR side because, we don't put ourselves in a reporter's shoes we don't know the volume of information that they're getting and there're a lot of you know people marketing people not just pr people who send they put you on a crm list and and send you you know stuff that's that's they shouldn't be getting it just creates more noise and it's annoying and you know m- makes them not want to talk to you <laughs> so so start with that right and then from there you know, find out like craft, craft something just for that person and put some thought into it and make it a story for them to help them, you know, understand like, well, maybe I should take a look at that. Or, you know, this company is doing something interesting in this space. I see that you're, you know, following these issues. Here's a different take on it. You know, I'm happy to talk to you about it. Or can I meet you for coffee? If, you know, in a, in a, you know, not in a COVID world, obviously, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, or will you come to my company? Will you come to my agency and talk to our people about how to work with you? And some of those steps I think are are really helpful. It's, it's, but just start off by getting to know them
1: for Christ's sakes. Solid advice. And yet how often do most of us not do the simple things, right? Yeah. Right. I love it. Well, listen, this has been great. Besides sending everybody to Sabrinahorn.com, anything else you want to leave people with today? Yeah, no, I just think that like like about the book, like
0: I think think about the next time you might be tempted to fake it or exaggerate the truth or, you know, take a shortcut. Like pause for a second, right? And and think, well, how can I do this differently to avoid sabotaging my own success because faking it never works? And you don't need to fake it because you have everything that you need in order to to make it authentically.
1: You know, it is interesting the difference between short-term and long-term vision, right? Mm-hmm. You know, my biggest business hero is probably Warren Buffett. I talk about him on the show all the time. And he writes letters to all these CEOs of the companies he owns, the railroad. Dairy Queen, all these companies. And he he says things like, hey, we can actually afford to lose quite a lot of money. Mm-hmm. We cannot afford to lose any reputation. Nice. Please conduct yourselves. Please do things expecting mm-hmm. a semi-hostile reporter to report it on the front page of the newspaper that your family and friends read tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> and only do things that you'd be okay with them writing about. Yeah. And, and it really is that short-term, long-term thing. Because I think about when I get tempted to exaggerate, when I get attempted to uh, do stuff that's in the gray area. It's, it's never for long-term reasons. It's always for short-term reasons.
0: Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. And the problem with that is that, you know, you can become, it can become habit forming (laughs) and you can do it once and it worked and then you do it again and again. And then, you know, ultimately like it undermines who you are. It undermines um, your authenticity. And then in the most egregious Examples like an Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, for example, or Bernie Madoff, you know, who recently passed away, the Ponzi scheme, Ponzi King guy, you know, it became a way of life. And those are extreme examples. Most of us obviously don't go there, but it's never a good idea. And you have to live with yourself too. And, you know, you have to think about the example you want to set for your kids or for your employees and make a decision to you know live live the right way and sometimes it, integrity is hard because you have to face reality and reality is not always peachy but that's that's what makes that's what makes real leaders right who are in it for the long game and those are the companies that are still around today and the other ones they may have a short-term success you know but they'll they'll fade away
1: You know, you think about the quality of life upgrade we all get by doing the hard right thing instead of the easy wrong thing. Yeah. You know, I just watched the Churchill movie, The Darkest Hour again last night. Ah, so great. Yeah. Listen, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm looking forward to seeing the book come out and congratulations on all the success.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you and, you know, I'd love to stay in touch and talk with you some more about PR or marketing or sort of where we go from here in a post-COVID scenario.
1: (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everyone.